often called Passion Week. It's the final week of Jesus' life on earth prior to his death and resurrection. It's also, as Pastor Ken mentioned, the Jewish Passover. It began with his entry into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, presenting himself as the peaceful king. We read about that in Matthew 21, 1 through 11. However, the sequence of events following that has always been debated among students of Scripture. The reasons for this unclear chronology are bound up with the different gospel accounts. At the front end of the week, we have the question of the relationship between Jesus' prophetic demonstration in the temple and his cursing of the fruitless fig tree. In Mark's account, Jesus cursed the fig tree before he entered the temple to overturn the tables of the money changers. Then on the next day, the disciples asked Jesus about the withered fig tree. But in Matthew's account, we read about Jesus overturning the money changers' tables in the temple before we read about the cursing of the fig tree. And he seems to suggest that the disciples witnessed the withering of the fig tree and asked Jesus about it all at the same time. We'll untangle this as best we can this morning. I invite you to look at the insert in your bulletin. Big page sticking out of the top. Hope you got one of those. I've provided for you my best attempt to sketch out the precise chronology of events throughout Passion Week. I apologize for the small font. On the back of that sheet, you'll see how the Exodus account of the original Passover specified the important moments related to the institution of the regular annual Passover celebration. But the focus, I want us to focus on the front side for now. I offer this to you as a bit of a study tool. Let me orient you to how it works. The top row reflects the Jewish calendar. The Jewish month of Nisan is the month that Passover is celebrated. The numbers along the top represent the calendar dates. And I have marked where I believe the two Sabbaths fall on the 9th and the 16th of Nisan. The references to 6th day, 7th day, etc. are the days of the week as they are noted in the gospel accounts. Finally, I've indicated how these would be noted in our typical understanding of days. Thus, for example, if you can find Nisan 10, that's the first day of the week, which for the Jews would constitute Saturday evening into Sunday morning. So the column on the left indicates each hour of the day, beginning with 7 p.m. Thus, for example, Nisan 10 would have begun at 7 p.m. on Saturday evening. Their reckoning of time is different from ours, and that makes it hard for us to keep up sometimes. Now, I've attempted to identify the distinct events noted by the four gospel writers. I've guessed at the specific time frames, the hours indicated. Usually, the particular time of day is not noted in the gospels, but sometimes it is. And sometimes it's noted more loosely, saying that something happened in the morning or in the evening. Different students of Scripture will sketch this out a little bit differently in certain places. But it seems to me that Mark has the most precise and the most frequent chronological indicators. So I use his gospel as a starting point for this chronology, and I try to relate the other three gospels to his account. You can put that away for now. Don't get distracted by it. Let's consider our passage for this morning. In Matthew 21, 18 to 22... We see Jesus cursing the fruitless fig tree and teaching his disciples. I think it will be helpful for us to consider the parallel from Mark 11 all the way through. 
I like to focus on Matthew's distinctive details, but this passage has been much misunderstood and taken out of context over the years. Mark's more detailed account uh, has also been twisted out of its context, but I think the more expansive details in Mark will help us understand the situation more clearly. Both Matthew and Mark show that the cursing of the fruitless fig tree needs to be understood alongside Jesus' prophetic actions in the temple. So let's look at Matthew 21, 18 and 19 first. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Now look at Mark eleven twelve to 14. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So during the first three days of the week, Jesus will spend each day in Jerusalem, in the temple, and then will return every evening to Bethany, where he and his disciples were spending the nights. Mark had indicated earlier that after Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey on Sunday, he showed up in the temple late that evening, and he just looked around and left. Then he and his disciples returned to Bethany, probably to Lazarus' home where they'd be lodging for the week. On Monday morning, as they walk from Bethany to Jerusalem, Jesus experiences normal human hunger pains. Perhaps he hadn't eaten breakfast before he left the house. His human hunger drew his attention to the possibility of food, like it does for us. So he noticed a single fig tree just off the side of the main road. Even before he got close to it, he could see it had leaves on it, which might be promising hungry travelers a roadside snack. However, Mark tells us it wasn't the season for figs. So, assuming Jesus knows what season it is, why does he approach the fig tree? The indication of Jesus' hunger leads us to expect that he's intending to satisfy his hunger. However, I think that might be reading too much into the statement. I think Mark tells us that it wasn't the season for figs to help us see that Jesus' reason for approaching the fig tree was not to satisfy his hunger. Instead, his human hunger pains prompted him to notice the fig tree, but knowing that it was too early for this tree to have produced any figs, Jesus sees this fig tree as a teaching opportunity. His human hunger pains draw his attention to something he can use as an important prophetic statement to help his disciples understand what he's about to do when he enters the temple in Jerusalem that same morning. If Jesus was merely wanting to satisfy his hunger, he could have done it. In fact, there's a rabbinic legend in the Talmud about the son of Rabbi Yosef, who addressed a fig tree, causing it to bear fruit out of season. Rabbi Yosei was known for having no mercy toward his own son and his daughter. Here's the story. One day the rabbi had day laborers working in his field while he was away, but they hadn't brought any food and it was getting late. So they approached the rabbi's son and complained of their hunger. 
The rabbi's son approached the fig tree they were sitting next to and said, Fig tree, fig tree, bring out your fruit so father's workers may eat. And the tree produced fruit and they ate. When the father came out, he apologized for his lateness that prevented him from providing food for them. They responded, May the all-merciful satisfy you as your son has satisfied us. Then they told the rabbi what his son had done. Rabbi Yosef then said to his son, My son, you have troubled your creator to have the fig bring forth its fruit not in its proper time. May you be gathered in not in your proper time. He cursed his son to an early death because he demanded a miracle from God. I won't tell you how he treated his daughter. It's much worse. Here, in this situation with Jesus, Jesus curses the the fruitless fig tree. Some look at this as Jesus raging against a poor, defenseless tree. Jesus' irrational miracle of destruction, punishing a tree for not producing fruit when it wasn't time for the tree to be producing fruit anyway. You might remember that Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and then resisted the temptation to turn stones into bread. You might also remember that Jesus has multiplied fish and loaves to feed thousands. He could truly direct this fig tree to produce on the spot, regardless of what season it is, if that is what he wanted to do. This is not about Jesus' hunger. The fruitless fig tree becomes an object lesson for the disciples. Mark tells us that Jesus speaks to the tree, cursing it on Monday morning, and then Jesus and his disciples will return by the same road from Bethany to Jerusalem on Tuesday morning, and that is when the disciples see the tree completely withered. Notice that Jesus only said, May no one eat from you again. That's how Mark put it. But in Matthew, we read, May no fruit ever come from you again. The intent of Jesus' words was to kill the tree. Why? What's the lesson? Notice the significance of the leaves. The presence of leaves on the tree are like a promise, an advertisement of fruit. Leaves present the appearance of health and maturity. The tree looks good from a distance. It looks good on the outside, but once you get up close... You see clearly that it has no fruit. What should the disciples have noticed? As Jews, they should have known that Israel was portrayed in the Old Testament as a fruitless fig tree at times. For example, consider Micah 7.1. The prophet says, Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. What does this fruitlessness illustrate? Micah explains in verse 2, The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. Jesus' curse, his denouncing of this fruitless tree, is like the prophet's lament. Micah pronounced woe on himself because he cannot find anyone around him who remains faithful to the Lord. Jesus is also acting as Yahweh himself. Jesus' curse for fruitlessness is eternal fruitlessness. This is reflective of what we read in Jeremiah 8.13, as the New American Standard translates it. I will surely snatch them away, declares Yahweh. There will be no grapes on the vine and no figs on the fig tree, and the leaf will wither, and what I have given them will pass away. 
The disciples should have seen the fruitless fig tree as an image of Israel. However, Jesus intends a more specific referent. He's setting the disciples up to understand what he's about to do in the temple. Thus, the fruitless fig tree here represents the fruitless temple in Jerusalem. He approaches the fig tree to seek fruit, since it advertises its fruit with green foliage. Likewise, he approaches the temple in Jerusalem to seek fruit, the fruit of worship, praise given to God and prayers directed to God from Jew and Gentile alike. Herod's temple was a wonder of the world. It was truly magnificent. The disciples will comment on its magnificence later in the week, seemingly not getting anything that Jesus is showing and telling them here. It looks great on the outside. It's got priests everywhere, busy, busy priests, incense burning, animals being sacrificed, blood being shed on the altar, rituals aplenty. But where's the fruit? As we already read about in Matthew's account, this temple had been transformed into a safe haven for hypocrites, as Pastor Ken put it last week, a headquarters for criminals, a den of robbers. Jesus approached the fig tree looking for figs, And he approaches the temple looking for righteousness, genuine international communion with God, and sacrifices that reflect a true faith in the God of Israel. Jesus curses the fig tree with eternal fruitlessness. May no fruit ever come from you again. And Jesus curses the temple, anticipating its imminent and permanent destruction. This is what the disciples should understand. This is history repeating itself. Jeremiah 8.13 was Yahweh's announcement of judgment against Jerusalem and Judah, the southern kingdom, in figurative terms. What was literally going to happen? Yahweh was going to send the Babylonians in to destroy Jerusalem and the temple. In the previous chapter, Jeremiah 7 Yahweh detailed to the prophet both why judgment was coming and what that judgment was going to look like. Judgment was coming because of the corruption and idolatry happening in the Jerusalem temple. In Matthew's gospel, when Jesus pronounces judgment against the temple, as we saw last week, he quotes Jeremiah 7, 11. And then Matthew tells us about the fruitless fig tree, just like in Jeremiah 8, 13. You see how Matthew is following Jeremiah here. The disciples should have thought of Jeremiah's prophecy when they saw these things unfolding before their eyes. But how do they respond? They marvel. Look at Matthew 21, 20, and then Mark 11, 20, and 21. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? Again, Mark makes it clear that the disciples had heard Jesus curse the tree on Monday morning. Then when they pass by again on Tuesday morning, they see the tree withered completely. Matthew compresses the scene. Look at Mark's account. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. Peter surprised at the impact of Jesus' words on the fig tree. Jesus spoke, and the tree died. How does Jesus answer Peter's astonishment? He teaches the disciples how to curse like him. Now, I know that's a bit of a provocative way to put it. 
Look at Matthew 21, 21 and 22. And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And before we look at the details and see how Mark expands this account, notice that the next words in Matthew's gospel are, and when he entered the temple. The temple context of this passage must be kept in view, or we will certainly misunderstand this passage and misapply it in all sorts of ways. Now look at Mark eleven twenty two to 24. We'll come back and add verse 25, since it's not reflected in Matthew here at all. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Jesus cursed the fruitless fig tree, and it died. The disciples seemed surprised that the fruitless tree died at Jesus' word. After all, Jesus didn't say, die, tree, die. Peter rightly recognized that what Jesus had said was a kind of curse, a kind of prayer for harm or judgment or destruction to come from God. Jesus had said, may no fruit ever come from you again. May you remain perpetually fruitless. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. The tree could have continued living but just never bore any figs again. But the tree actually withered up completely overnight. No more pretty leaves. The roots were now dry and cracked, dead. And as we saw, this is symbolic of the judgment Jesus pronounced against the fruitless temple. This enacted parable, this dramatic, theatrical, symbolic, prophetic act paints a picture of Jesus' judgment against the temple and the Jewish leaders who were overseeing the activity in the temple, perpetuating a hypocritical, false system of worship. How are Jesus' followers supposed to think about this? First, Jesus insists that they must have an undivided faith in God. Both Matthew and Mark emphasize faith, and both speak of faith without doubting. However, this is one of those very rare places in the Bible where English Bible translations have not caught up yet with biblical scholarship. The word translated doubt does not mean what we think of as doubt. So it's unfortunate that Christians read these verses and see the condemnation of doubt here and draw the conclusion that for God to answer my prayer, I have to be absolutely certain in my faith. Usually this is spun out something like this. You must pray with faith, meaning you must believe with absolute certainty that God will give you what you're asking for. So when you don't get what you ask for, the explanation must be that you didn't have enough faith or your faith was mingled with uncertainty. This Greek word just does not refer to that. The word means to be divided. It's related to terms for judgment and discernment in the Bible. It can refer to division within people, between people, disagreement or conflict, or it can refer to internal division 
where there are mixed motives. That's not the same thing as what we think of as doubt, is it? Mixed motives. In connection with faith, it refers to divided faith, partial faith. The opposite is wholehearted, single-minded faith. But then we must ask what this faith looks like in the context of cursing and in the broader context of praying. Jesus says that the disciples will do what he did to the fig tree if they have undivided faith. Mark has Jesus preface that with a simple command to have faith in God. That's actually the key to understanding all of this. When they're having this conversation, the disciples have seen Jesus both curse the fig tree and curse the temple directly. Now, they should understand that these are one and the same thing, since the fig tree is meant to represent the temple. But they don't. So what are they supposed to believe? Well, they're supposed to believe God, to believe His Word, to believe what He has said. When Jesus said that the temple is now a den of robbers, as Jeremiah said that the temple of his day had become, the disciples need to believe that the temple is indeed a den of robbers, fit only for destruction. When Jesus curses the fruitless fig tree, they need to see that through the lens of Jeremiah 7 and 8 as well. And when it dies, they need to get and believe the message that the temple that the fig tree represents must and will also die. Believe God when He says that the Jerusalem temple is dead and no longer needed ever again. But then Jesus explains all this with another image. After He says that the disciples would curse the fig tree and see it die like He had done, they would also curse this mountain. Look again at the end of Matthew 21, 21. But even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. What we need to see here is that Jesus is describing their cursing the temple. This mountain is not any old mountain. As I mentioned when we looked at Jesus' earlier mountain saying back in Matthew 17, the idea that throwing a mountain into the sea or moving a mountain was proverbial in Jesus' day for doing any old hard or impossible thing is probably historically false. That idea seems to have come along later than Jesus' time. It seems to be an idea that maybe even was a distortion of what Jesus was teaching here among some well-meaning Jews. Instead, Jesus is speaking here about the disciples asking God to judge the temple. This mountain most likely refers to the temple mount. Not everyone sees it that way. Others see it that he's referring to the Mount of Olives in some way. But I see it as a reference to the temple mount. Jesus can refer to the temple in this geographical way, this mountain, similar to how we Americans refer to our government on Capitol Hill. The specific statement, be taken up, And thrown into the sea seems actually to be a kind of prayer or curse. We could paraphrase it this way. Be lifted up by God and be thrown into the sea by God. So that while seemingly addressing the temple mount itself, the person in view is actually requesting that God would lift up the temple mount and throw it into the sea. Thus, Jesus is focusing on the judgment he has already pronounced against the temple. And he's suggesting that his disciples might pray 
for the coming judgment. It was common for Jewish people to pray for judgment day to come, for God to make all things right in the world and to rescue Israel from oppression. Jesus' demonstration in the temple depicted God's judgment against the temple and those associated with it. And he is connecting the temple's judgment with the final judgment and the disciples' probable practice of praying that judgment day would come. You know, Jesus reinforces this Jewish practice in the model prayer. When we pray, your kingdom come, a part of that, a big part of that, is a prayer for judgment day. The final manifestation of God's kingdom is going to come with fire and brimstone and judgment against all who remain in rebellion against Jesus. That's what we are praying for when we pray, your kingdom come. And so the disciples here are, adding some speci- are supposed to add some specificity to that. There are probably at least two Old Testament passages that Jesus has in mind with this statement. First, Jesus is probably thinking of Isaiah 2, 2 where Isaiah indicates that the Temple Mount shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. But what Isaiah depicted as the favorable destiny of Israel and the Temple Mount, Jesus has ironically turned into a pronouncement of judgment. Secondly, and in a similar way, Jesus uses the language of Psalm 46.2, which speaks of mountains being moved into the heart of the sea, as something that might cause fear for the psalmist, along with the earth giving way, the waters of the sea roaring and foaming, and the mountains trembling at the swelling of the sea. But the psalmist does not fear, because God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So Jesus takes the profession of confidence and security of the psalmist and turns it into a pronouncement of sure judgment coming on the temple. Because ultimately... The temple has become a threat to God's people, an obstacle to the true worship of God. It must be destroyed and gotten out of the way so that the people of God can indeed experience that safety and security that the psalmist expresses. Indeed, beyond that, because Jesus has come and he's bringing the heavenly kingdom to earth in their midst, they should recognize that their prayer for judgment day to come is unfolding before their eyes. Jesus says that the person who makes this request for the temple mount to be ejected as Yahweh comes for judgment day must not be divided. As we just talked about, this word is not to be understood as doubt in the sense of uncertainty. Jesus' focus is not on doubt, but rather double-mindedness. I think he's saying that the person who prays for judgment day to come, or for God's judgment to come even more generally, should pray with single-minded focus and devotion to the Lord who comes to judge and to save. Instead of being divided in his intentions, the person should believe that what he has spoken to the Temple Mount will happen very soon. The process has already begun. Jesus has announced the Temple's impending doom. He did so through prophetic demonstration in the Temple itself. He has done so through symbolic prophetic action against the the fruitless fig tree, And he will do so plainly in Matthew 24. The disciples need to trust his word and pray according to the revealed will of God. That's what we're talking about here. Pray according to the revealed will of God. God has revealed his will regarding the Jerusalem temple. 
And his disciples are encouraged to pray for his will to be done fully and finally. Now, can't you imagine how difficult this would be for Jesus' Jewish disciples? Their relationship with God has been centered around the temple for their entire lives. They need to have their perspective changed. When the Jewish revolt begins around the year 66 AD, and the Jewish people provoke the Roman armies to march into Jerusalem and besiege the temple, which will have been transformed yet again from a den of robbers into a military outpost. Faith in God would be remarkably challenged for Jewish Christians, especially if they haven't come to understand Jesus' teaching about the temple. Fortunately, most of them do, it seems, historically. I can imagine the disciples thinking at this point when they hear this from Jesus, "Uh, are we supposed to ask for that? Are we supposed to ask God to cast the temple mount into the sea for it to be utterly destroyed? And Jesus is saying, yes, you should be asking for that. This has relevance for our day as well. There are many Christians who anticipate the rebuilding of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem as a kind of harbinger of Jesus' return. There are even organizations that collect money to support that building project. However, I believe that is neither biblical nor wise. I don't believe the Bible ever says that a physical temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. But even if a temple is to be rebuilt, and even if the Bible does indicate that it will be, I don't believe Christians should ever support such a project. If the temple is rebuilt in Jerusalem, Christians should mourn and weep. The Jews will be exalting another idolatrous building in competition against the one true temple, the man in whom all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell, Jesus himself. A physical temple in Jerusalem can only be an obstacle to genuine faith in Jesus. That's actually Jesus' point here. The temple must fall permanently because Jesus is building a new temple. More on that in just a bit. Let's consider what this passage teaches us about prayer more broadly. This passage contains no blank check for prayer. Matthew 21, 22 and Mark 11, 24 are certainly taken out of context to suggest that very idea. The universal language, whatever you ask, is intended to generalize from cursing to other forms of petitionary prayer. But the universal language is also limited by the context, as it so often is. As with the cursing of the fruitless fig tree, as with the cursing of the temple mount, so all prayer must be spoken in line with God's revealed will. Thus, we could look at other passages of instruction from Jesus and in the New Testament more broadly and find that Christian prayer is always supposed to be in the name of Jesus according to the revealed will of God, and in faith. Our expectation of receiving what we ask for must be tempered by our faith in God's character, His totally gracious sovereignty, His complete wisdom, and His perfect goodness. Too many folks use this passage to explain why we don't get what we ask for in prayer with accusations of a lack of faith. I appreciate one writer's way of questioning this approach as he considers how we might pray for an upcoming surgery. And we pray something like, Lord, if it's your will, please bring her through the surgery successfully. He mentions how some would say, that is a prayer expressing lack of faith. This author responds, is it lack of faith or is it honest faith to say that I cannot be sure 
that my surgical operation is supposed to succeed. I think it is lack of faith or respect for God to say that I am sure that what I want is what God wants. He later presses home the lesson, I cannot ask believingly that my life will be without crosses. I can pray believingly that the cross will serve God's honor and help other people. I cannot pray with confidence that I will always enjoy perfect health. I can pray with confidence that whatever my health, I may please God. Amen. I like the way one author illustrated the contextual limitation of a phrase like, whatever you wish. Let me quote him at length, so bear in here for just a moment. This author says, for example, what do I mean when I say to my son, you can have whatever you want. Do I mean that whatever his little heart can possibly imagine without qualification will be all his? That is ridiculous and irresponsible to think or teach. Rather, whatever you want is qualified by where we are and what the recent conversation has been. If I say it at a restaurant, then I mean whatever's on the menu. If I say it at Toys R Us, a dangerous place to utter such words, then I mean whatever is in the store, but only if I say it at the moment we walk in. If I say it in a certain aisle, after deliberating there for a while, then I mean whatever is in that aisle. If I say it at a car dealership, now we're getting ridiculous. It obviously means whatever is on the lot and the kind we already discussed and the price range we already discussed and so forth. We know by intuition that all utterances are controlled by many such variables discerned from their context. It is foolish and dangerous to suddenly drop such considerations when reading Jesus' words. So it is hard to conclude that Jesus meant to talk about the temple and talk about the temple and talk about the temple, then suddenly change subjects and offer his followers whatsoever their carnal hearts desire, then snap back to talking about the temple again. That's just not how discourse works. Now, in Mark 11, 24, the condition is worded this way. Believe that you've received it and it will be yours. Some twist this to indicate that we are to name it and claim it, the it being whatever in our wildest imaginations we want. However, a host of things militate against this understanding, but I will focus on two. First, the tense of the verb receive is not necessarily indicating something that's already past. It might be wise to translate it simply as receive in this context. Believe that you receive. Also, The word it is not expressed in Greek. It's possible that Mark intends to imply it as the object of the verb receive, but I I don't think so. I think Jesus is still focused on the attitude of the person praying. Thus, prayer to God ought to be made with faith that you receive. In other words, our posture in prayer must be that of a receiver. We should request things from God, recognizing our position as utterly full of needs and his position as totally committed to meeting all of our needs, even if he defines our needs differently than we might. It's important to appreciate the non-specificity of Jesus in some of these prayer passages. I'd paraphrase this verse like this. When you ask your heavenly Father for things that you need, acknowledge your need openly, 
Believe that He has the resources to supply your need and expect God to satisfy your need, even if the form of the provision does not match precisely the way that you expressed your need. And it might be important to add one final detail on this point. The you in this section is always plural. Jesus is addressing the disciples as they would pray together. Recognizing this should push against the individualistic way we tend to think about prayer. Certainly, most of our prayer is done alone, individually. But shouldn't even our personal, private praying be in connection with the needs of the church and the world? Are we only ever praying for our own needs in private prayer? Jesus is focusing on corporate prayer here, and this is an important detail in this context because Jesus is describing the disciples, the church, as the new place for prayer and forgiveness. When Jesus turned over the money changers' tables in the temple, he had quoted Isaiah 56, 7, which indicated that God designed the temple to be a house of prayer for all the nations, since the Jerusalem temple is no longer a house of prayer for all the nations and never will be again. Jesus is building a new house of prayer for all the nations, the church. If the new temple Jesus is building is going to be fruitful, prayer will be key. And Mark adds a statement about forgiveness that Matthew does not record. Look at Matthew, Mark eleven twenty five, And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Why does he add this statement? I'm convinced it is because the other primary role the temple played in the life of the Jewish people was the provision of forgiveness. If a Jew wanted forgiveness of their sins, they must go to the temple and provide the appropriate sacrifices. And what is the fruit that forgiven sinners should be producing in their lives? Forgiveness. If the temple is to be destroyed if it is no longer capable of producing the fruit of forgiveness in its hallowed halls, how will sinners receive forgiveness of their sins? It's a classic question that the Jews had to wrestle with after the Babylonian destruction of Solomon's temple. And it's a question they've had to wrestle with again ever since the Roman destruction of Herod's temple in 70 AD. The only appropriate answer is Jesus. Everything that the Jerusalem temple stood for Every function that God designed for the Jerusalem temple is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. No more animal sacrifices will be accepted by God for the forgiveness of sins. Ever. No one has to bring a spotless lamb to Jerusalem ever again. Because the spotless lamb of God has been slain once for all, inexorably, unrepeatably. And Jesus is that lamb of God. And he has offered himself as the final sacrifice that God will accept for atonement. The only human sacrifice ever accepted by God. Once Jesus lays down his life and rises from the dead, the Jerusalem temple has nothing left to do. Sure, Christians could go to the temple and pray. And we read about them doing just that in the book of Acts. But they don't have to. They did so as an opportunity to witness to the Jews who continued the false worship of the temple. Jesus is the great son of David. And as a son of David, like Solomon, Jesus is a great temple builder. Because Jesus is God, he pronounces final judgment against the defunct temple in Jerusalem. And he will be the one to enact that judgment 
as he sovereignly orchestrates the Roman invasion and the Roman siege and the Roman destruction of both city and temple, just as it was told to the prophet Daniel. Jesus announces the judgment and destruction of the temple through prophetic action and through plain prophecy, but he also announced the building of a new temple. When Jesus is arrested and taken before the authorities for trial, the witnesses who are brought in can't get their story straight about what Jesus has done wrong. In Mark 14, 58, we read the witnesses saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another, not made with hands. Mark tells us that this was false witness. The only occasion we have of the gospel writers recording something Jesus said that is anything remotely similar to this has relevance for our message this morning. In John 2, we read about Jesus' first Passover in Jerusalem after he had been baptized by John and begun his public ministry. Some three and a half years before the events we're reading about in Matthew 21, Jesus had done something similar in the temple. He gave a different reason on that occasion for these actions of overturning the money changers' tables. But when the Jewish leaders asked him essentially to prove he had the authority to do such a thing, we read these words in John 2.19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple... And in three days, I will raise it up. When you compare Mark 14, 58 and John 2, 19, you can see how they've misunderstood or distorted what Jesus actually said. However, though these witnesses were bringing false testimony, perhaps in an ironic twist, as happens several times in Jesus' final week, they are speaking better than they know. They intend to lie, but they actually speak the truth. John clues us readers in. To make sure we readers understand what's really going on in John 2.21, John added, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Thus, when the Jewish leaders destroy Jesus' body on the cross and and on the third day afterward, Jesus would be rising from the dead in a resurrected, glorified body, a new temple. And in 2 Corinthians 5.1, the reality of a building not made with hands is applied to Christians. Paul writes, for we know that if the tent that is, our earthly home is destroyed. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. This is referring to our resurrection bodies. Thus, like Jesus' resurrected body, so also our resurrected bodies can be spoken of as a rebuilt temple. But of course, Paul also indicates that we are the temple of God right now. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul writes, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? As Pastor Ken pointed out last week, the you in this verse is plural. Paul is saying that the church is the newly rebuilt temple. And Peter depicts the construction project as ongoing. In 1 Peter 2.5, we read, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Everything the temple was intended by God to be, a dwelling place for God, a house of prayer for all the nations, the place of priestly service, and the place of forgiveness is now being experienced and fulfilled in the church. When you come to trust in Jesus, you die with him. His death on the cross 2,000 years ago becomes your death certificate. And when you come to trust in Jesus, you are raised from the dead with Him, raised to walk in newness of life, as Paul says in Romans 6, 4. The Spirit takes up permanent residence within you, 
And you are, from that moment on and forevermore, the temple of God. But you, as an individual temple, are functioning as merely a stone in a larger corporate, global temple of God that Jesus is building. God has forgiven all of our sins through his once-for-all sacrifice, and he calls us to bear the fruit of forgiving each other when we sin. You see, the fig tree must bear fruit. The temple must have fruitful worship. Live the normal Christian life with your fellow Christians. Trust Jesus day by day. Pray without ceasing. And forgive as you have been forgiven. In other words, be the faithful, fruitful temple Jesus has built you to be. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for difficult passages like these. It presses us to look more closely at the broad spectrum of your word. Try to keep it all together. We are puzzled by your judgment at times. But you have made it clear that it is well-deserved every time it comes. And so we pray, Father, that you would help us to understand our place in all of that. Help us to revel in gratitude and worship because you have provided a substitute to take the judgment that we deserve. We thank you that Jesus was willing to indeed be crushed and destroyed for us. Thank you for providing forgiveness for our sins, all of them, every single one of them. And we thank you that through that great act, Jesus has ascended his throne and sent his spirit to dwell in every single one of us. We thank you for the blessing, the privilege, the gift of serving as the temple in this time and in this world. Would you help us to function that way? Help us to live fruitfully, bearing the fruit of worship that covers all of our lives, dedicated to you, devoted to you. May we do everything that we do for the glory of God and in the name of Jesus. We pray that your spirit would be more evident in each one of our lives, that he would be at work to change us, to grow us, to conform us to the image of your Son so that all may know that you have accomplished a great salvation as we extend that offer to the world. Help us to be faithful in that regard. In Jesus' name, amen.